Perfil Podcast. Pensando el coronavirus con Jorge Fontevecchia. Con Jorge Fontevecchia. Es hora de que comprendamos que estamos cuidando la salud de los artistas. Asegurar la continuidad de nuestra vida democrática y de nuestras instituciones. Por el coronavirus, y Reconstruir económica y socialmente nuestro país. Y lo haremos cuando hayamos superado el virus y evaluado el impacto. Pero todavía hay una terapia contra el coronavirus. Es peor que el coronavirus hoy. Yo diría que sí, hoy es peor. Nadie puede moverse de su residencia. Todos tienen que quedarse Todos en sus casas. Tienen que quedarse en sus Uno casas. no entiende mucho más fantasía, cuestión del coronavirus. Pensando el coronavirus con Jorge Fontevecchia. A profound conversation with the Australian philosopher Peter Singer. 45 years ago, you wrote the Bible of the pro-animal movement, the book Animal Liberation that the coronavirus has been produced by the consumption of an animal, also wild, in this case the bat, send a message to humanity about the consume of animals in general? I think the pandemic should send a message to uh, everybody about consuming animals. Uh, of course, at the moment, the focus is mostly on consuming wild animals. And I think there is an international effort to close these markets at which wild animals are traded and slaughtered for human consumption. Uh, and they're also very cruel markets, of course, with the terrified animals caged up together and then being uh, killed without any anesthetic uh, in front of the consumer. Uh, so uh, I, I totally support the call to ban such markets. But, but that is not enough because we've seen in the past that Uh, there have been uh, viruses that have come out of uh, intensive farming, out of factory farms. And in fact, uh, experts have described these as ideal breeding places for new viruses because you have maybe 20,000 animals in a single shed. Uh, they are not really healthy because of the crowding. Their immune systems are weakened and uh, viruses can rapidly mutate and then get into humans. The previous pandemic Uh, recognized by the World Health Organization, uh, the swine flu, um, 2009, came out of a factory farm in uh, North Carolina in the United States. So uh, I think we have to look at this larger question uh, about consuming animals, especially uh, animals so crowded together in factory farms. You were rated as the most influential revolutionary philosopher in the ethics and bioethics. I ask for your analysis of the coronavirus, especially from the field of bioethics. Well, there are several ethical questions that we can raise from the field of bioethics about the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, one that I've been interested in is the question of uh, people uh, volunteering to uh, get the virus, to, to, to have a candidate for a vaccine and then to be infected by the virus in order to speed up the process of getting a vaccine which you so urgently need. Uh, and I think it's wonderful to see that uh, uh, there's a website at which uh, last time I looked, nearly 5,000 people have volunteered to do this. Um, so I think there's a good example of uh, altruism that could help us to get rid of the pandemic more quickly. Uh, and some 
people working in ethics have questioned whether that would be acceptable to use human volunteers uh, rather than to go through the slow, slower process of uh, inoculating, testing it on people in general. But uh, I believe it would be. I think uh, if people are well informed and they are willing to volunteer to do good and uh, to take the risk for themselves, which may not even be a, a significant risk if they are young and healthy, then uh, I think that's one question that we can uh, accept. Uh, there are also broader questions, of course, uh, uh, that the pandemic gives rise to, broader ethical questions, in particular with regard to the lockdown and how should we decide when it would be right to end the lockdown. But we have very different values that we're comparing. Uh, on the one hand, uh, yes, ending the lockdown sooner may lead to deaths, but continuing the lockdown may lead to a great amount of misery and suffering uh, because of the, particularly because of the unemployment that it causes and uh, the bankruptcies, many small businesses, restaurants and bars and so on will go bankrupt. Uh, and this causes great hardship and loss. And in the end, it may also cause loss of life. So I think we need to really try to compare these different things and not simply say uh, the lockdown has to continue uh, as long as there are still some risk of people dying from the virus. You explain that the life of human being is not always more important than an animal. For example, the life of someone unconscious due to severe brain damage. How does the ethics solve the problems? What life is more important in the face of coronavirus dilemmas? For example, when there are not enough artificial respirators and happen in Northern Italy? Well, this is a, a very good question. Uh, and I think we do need to not only think about uh, the loss of life, but about the length of life that we might save and the quality of that life. So uh, I support the view that in general, people with a longer life expectancy should get priority over people with a shorter life expectancy. And that uh, will mean that in general, you would give preference to younger people. So one, one of the factors of the coronavirus is that most of the people who've been dying have been quite elderly. Um, here in Australia, where I'm speaking from, the median age of uh, people dying from coronavirus is 80 years. And in Italy, it was quite close to that. It was 79 when I saw some figures. So in, in general, younger people with more, life, more years of life ahead of them should get priority over people who are, let's say, uh, over 80 or perhaps even over 70, which is a category that I'm in myself. Um, but if somebody has an underlying health condition, that means they are not likely to live very long, then even if they're younger, I think that should be taken into account. So a younger person with an incurable cancer should not be put ahead of a healthy person who's 70. But, um, but normally speaking, I think it's, it's the number of years of life that should determine who gets the respirator uh, when not enough, uh, there are not enough uh, machines for everybody to use. Argentine ensagist Beatriz Sarlo criticized the idea of prioritizing the youngest who have a better chance to survival for being morally dangerous. Ironically, 
she asked, why not the smartest, the most educated, the most patriotic, those who had not have single line of the record, those who have more children, the best athletes or any other discriminatory category to many authoritarian regimes have practiced in the past. Uh, do you disagree with Beatriz Arlo's ironical idea? I, I do disagree with that idea. Um, I think it's a mistake to say that because some forms of discrimination would be objectionable, therefore we can't discriminate at all. Um, and that is really what uh, is being said in, in that claim. When, for example, you include those who are the most patriotic, uh, obviously we should all reject this idea that we try to assess people from their patriotism and save those who are more patriotic. Uh, that's very, very objectionable. But um, to say that we shouldn't therefore have any criteria at all would imply that um, if there is somebody who has an incurable cancer and who doctors say can only live a few days, that you put give that person an equal chance of getting on a respirator ahead of somebody who uh, maybe you know, urgently needs the respirator for uh, a few days to breathe, but then will recover and maybe because they're only 40 years old could expect to live another 40 years. And I don't think anybody would really say that it's, it's wrong to discriminate, if that is the term being used, in favour of somebody who has 40 years to live rather than somebody who has four days to live. Uh, that, that would be crazy. So I think it's a question not of discriminating or not discriminating, but of which criteria for discrimination we use. And I think we can uh, discuss those criteria, but as I said, I think the one about using uh, life expectancy, uh, how long you can expect people to live, is one on which there would be a broad consensus that that is what uh, most people in the community want. Let me see if I understand right. The question is that the expectancy of life is an objective thing. The other criteria are subjective things, and nobody can measure that. Well, um, you know, some of those things that were mentioned, I suppose you can measure, like um, athletic ability. You could say that that's objective. Who can run 100 metres faster? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I don't think anybody would really think that the fact that somebody runs 100 metres faster is a reason for giving them a ventilator. So it's not exactly objective or subjective. It's what kinds of criteria. Why do we see this as important? And I think one way in which you can see it as life expectancy is reasonable is uh, imagine that people did not know what their life expectancy would be. Uh, this is like the philosopher John Rawls talks about choosing a position behind a veil of ignorance. So you have to make a choice, but you don't know whether your life will be longer or shorter. Um, and on that basis, then saying, do you think society should adopt a principle that people with longer life expectancy should get preference? And I think from that position in which one has to be impartial because one doesn't know if one is old, old or young or has a long or short life expectancy, I think most people clearly say, yes, we should prefer people with longer life expectancy because I would have more to lose if I turn out to be somebody with a long life expectancy and I don't get a ventilator because somebody with a short life expectancy is put on it. Um, 
On the other hand, if you if you perform the same exercise with something like how patriotic people are or how fast they run 100 meters, I don't think um, people would say, yes, those are good criteria. Um, they would rather say, no, let's prefer people with more years of life ahead of them. Quarantines are one of the most efficiency ways to slow down the spread of the coronavirus. Yet they have an enormous effect in the economy. Where is the ethical or moral limit between slowing down the virus or destroying the economy? Well, the moral limit is essentially where we are doing more harm than good. So we, the lockdown does some good in that it saves lives, but it does some harm in that it damages the economy and creates widespread unemployment, which is a source of unhappiness for many people and sometimes much more than just unhappiness, but, but great economic hardship. So the problem is to try to assess and compare these very different things, lives saved as against these kinds of hardship. Um, I think that's difficult, but it's not completely impossible. We, we need to find out how great is the hardship that we get from the slowdown in the economy, how much damage is that doing? And at some point, we can say uh, the number of deaths that we are preventing is relatively few and the hardship to very many people is very great and that outweighs the risk of a small number of additional deaths especially, as I was saying, if these were very elderly people who would not have had many years to live anyway. So that's the kind of judgment we want to make. But um, part of the problem is we don't really have the information yet about both about the risks or death and about the hardship that the economic lockdown is causing. Does this question change when we are talking about rich countries such as the United States or poor countries like Argentina? Yes, certainly uh, this economic question changes uh, with the nature of the country and the economy. Um, in particular, uh, rich countries can provide some kind of social security to people. The United States actually, among all the rich countries, is probably the worst in providing adequate social security to its poorer people. But it still does something. So we'll provide uh, food stamps so people can get food. Uh, there is some assistance with housing. And Congress did pass a stimulus package, though it's not really adequate. Um, whereas in poor countries where there isn't this kind of uh, social security safety net, then uh, when people become unemployed, they may literally be starving. Now, I, I'm not saying that this is the case in Argentina, uh, but of course there are poor countries, countries with large numbers of poor people. Um, India is one that has gone into an economic lockdown. And very large numbers of people, more than 100 million migrant workers, uh, suddenly became unemployed. They had no, nowhere to live, they had no money, they had to go home, there was no transport, they had to walk, in some cases, hundreds of kilometers, they had no food. Um, and in countries like that, an economic lockdown may produce uh, famine, it may produce uh, starvation among many people and malnutrition among children. Uh, so yes, the consequence can be much more serious in poorer countries of the lockdown. And therefore, I think it's more justified for them to not lock the economy down and to take a somewhat greater risk of people dying in order to 
dying from the virus uh, rather than dying from starvation or malnutrition or the other causes that come with uh, an economic recession. Argentine President Alberto Fernandez is making decisions based on panel of medical experts, like most leaders around the world. Today, businessmen in Argentina are complaining the panel of economic experts haven't been called to help. What is your take about this problem? I, I think that this is a legitimate criticism of reliance only on medical experts. Um, medical experts will, of course, focus on the medical side of things. They will focus on the risks of more people dying and becoming ill, and that's a very legitimate concern. But it's not the only concern. So I think it's reasonable to uh, also convene uh, others, um, perhaps economists, but perhaps also uh, social workers, people who work with people who have been made unemployed or um, people who have become uh, depressed because of their unemployment, uh, where perhaps domestic violence has increased because people are more at home. Um, I think it's not only economists that we should have, it's people who are observers of the problems that the lockdown is causing to society. And so it should be a broader group of experts, including, of course, in giving great weight to the medical experts, but balancing that against the other considerations that obviously are relevant to the question of when should we end the lockdown. Argentina is a country with a history of high inflation. An economist recently criticized the coronavirus response, saying that if you could act like medical export and not worry about the negative effects of your policies, it would have no problem to reducing the inflation by creating poverty. Uh, no field of knowledge should be autonomous or subordinated to the others. Would ethics be the exception? No, I don't think ethics is an exception in the sense of, of being entirely on its own in isolation from, mm -hmm. from the facts. I think ethics needs to draw on many other fields of uh, science and social science in order to have the relevant facts to make decisions. You can't make decisions just on the basis of ethics without considering the consequences of your action. And I think the, the point that was just made um, was the idea that, well, if you don't consider the consequences of your action, then you could stop inflation, just as you could maybe stop the coronavirus if you don't consider the consequences for the economy. Um, so uh, ethics is not different from that. It does need to draw on all of that information and to consider what the consequences of the different courses of action will be. And only when we have some sense of what those consequences will be can we reach a truly ethical decision on what we ought to do. Even the current economic crisis, poor nations are said to suffer substantially more than richest countries. Several people have, have argued uh, for massive debt forgiveness to poorest nations, particularly from an economic standpoint. What's the ethical argument about it? I think that there is a case for uh, debt forgiveness in the case of some nations and some situations. But I think it's too sweeping to say that we should simply forgive the debts of poorer nations. I think what we need to look at is what is going to be the most effective way of helping poorer nations 
uh, both to get through the coronavirus crisis and to recover from the economic slowdown caused by the crisis. So uh, I think we need to be more specific and more nuanced rather than having a kind of blanket uh, debt forgiveness campaign. I, I think that that could have bad consequences in encouraging countries to think that they can incur debts and then eventually some crisis will occur and they'll get wiped out again, so it doesn't matter. Uh, I think we must um, look for the kind of help that will do the most. Uh, and I do support the idea that rich nations should be doing much more to help poorer nations. Um, I think it's scandalous that rich nations like the United States give less than a quarter of 1% of their gross national product to uh, foreign aid. So we should be doing much more. We should be targeting it more effectively. But uh, simply massive debt forgiveness is not likely to be the best way to do that. Argentine is currently in negotiation over restructurating its debts. Creditors argue that Argentina must pay uh, what is owed and that its population must suffer the consequences of austerity bailing out Argentina would generate a moral hazard. What is your take about the moral hazard? Well, consistently with what I said just a moment ago about uh, kind of universal debt forgiveness, mm -hmm. uh, I accept that there is a moral hazard in uh, forgiving debts and that this is something that needs to be done uh, carefully in specific situations and not just automatically because the country has a high level of debt. Um, I think we saw in the case of Greece that there was uh, a long period of austerity and there was quite significant hardship, but uh, Greece is now apparently getting through that uh, situation and is coming out uh, better for it and its credit rating will be better for it. Um, so maybe it is necessary uh, in the long run to go through some austerity in order to maintain credit ratings and to encourage uh, a climate in which people regard the credit of a country as, as uh, one that will be kept. Your especially prized uh, Pope Laudato Si Encyclica, because he is Argentine, he is criticized with being the Peronist Pope by the Justicialist Party that won the majority of the Argentine election in the recent decade. Are more left-winning parties, such the Labour, the Socialist, the Justicialistic, ethically more sensible? Well, I think parties on the left tend to have more concern for those who are worse off. Um, but uh, this is not universal. Um, and I think that we, we, we need to look at the particular facts of the situation and we need to look at what will really help people in the long run. Uh, so I, I praised uh, the encyclical from uh, Pope Francis uh, because of its concern for uh, the environment. Um, and uh, that is something relatively new for Pope. Um, and there was even some reference to the treatment of animals there, which uh, again is, is, is new for a Pope. So, uh, My, my praise was, was quite specific. I'm, I'm not necessarily praising everything that uh, Pope Francis is, is doing or saying, but I do think that he, it's uh, a refreshing change in the Vatican 
and that the Vatican certainly needed uh, a great deal of change. So to that extent, I share the views of uh, those who support the social justice uh, aspect of, of what Pope Francis is trying to do, as well as the environmental aspect. Uh, one of uh, your books is The Dar Darwinian Left. Please synthesize to our audience Darwin's relationship with led for you. Well, um, so if we look at it historically, uh, the left um, has been greatly influenced by uh, Karl Marx. And Marx did, did not accept, really, did not take into account a Darwinian view of human nature. He uh, accepted Darwin for animals, but he thought that with human nature, uh, our nature is formed by the economic system in which we live. And therefore, he thought that if you had a communist revolution, human nature would be quite different. We would all become concerned about everybody. We would not be self-interested anymore. We would work hard for the general good. And uh, we would put that value above our own good or the good of our families and friends. Now, of course, we saw uh, under Soviet communism that that did not happen, that um, human nature did not change after the communist revolution. And that's generally been true of other countries in which communism has occurred as well. And I think the reason for that is that, in fact, human nature does have a biological basis. We have descended from ancestors who had to compete with each other in order to survive, who had to think of their own interests first and of the interests of their offspring. Otherwise, their genes would not have passed on to future generations. So I think the left has to accept this fact about human nature and has to abandon the Marxist idea that once you change the economy, humans will simply become naturally altruistic. Uh, we need to think again about how we can produce a better, more cooperative, more altruistic society. Uh, and I do think it's possible, but uh, it's not going to be as straightforward as Marx left agent. And so what we really need is piecemeal social reform, uh, experimenting with what will work to bring out the better, more altruistic side of human nature uh, on, a, on an incremental way, um, not trusting everything in a sweeping revolution that will sweep away the capitalist economy and supposedly sweep away self-human nature as well. That's simply not going to happen. Good compassion and other virtues be malleable in human nature and transferable to future generations epigenetically? I think that uh, for many generations to come anyway, we are going to have um, a mixture in human nature of both compassionate uh, uh, and self-interested, uh, and sometimes even, unfortunately, uh, malevolent and cruel tendencies in human nature. And I don't think we can expect that to change genetically. What we rather need to do is to develop social structures that will encourage and bring out the compassionate and altruistic strength in human nature and will reinforce them and at the same time tend to reduce and dampen down the influence of the self-interested 
and uh, as I said, even sometimes cruel strains in human nature. So it's going to be a, a long and slow process to develop a better human nature. Um, but we can make progress in that direction. That's what we should be doing. The Justicialist Party in Argentina proposed an additional tax for the coronavirus to the 12,000 richest people in the country. What do you think about the initiative and would the Congress of your country, Australia, approve something similar? Uh, well, I think that um, we certainly can afford and should tax uh, rich people more. Uh, not particularly concerned to think about singling out just the 12,000 richest people. I think we can have a progressive income tax scale that uh, increase taxes on uh, a large group of people, a much larger group than that. Um, yes, it should increase them more at the very top, but um, those who are in the upper middle class um, could also afford to pay more taxes to help people who are worse off and to build a better social structure and better security net for our country. Um, you asked about it. as a conservative government, it's uh, not at all likely to bring in um, higher taxes on wealthy people. Uh, but uh, you know, perhaps some future future government that is uh, more like the uh, Labour Party government uh, might go back to the kind of taxes that in fact most countries had in the 50s and 60s, including the United States, that much higher taxes on wealthy people than it has today. Uh, and in particular, I'd like to say I deplore the reduction or in some countries abolition of uh, state taxes uh, or, or death duty. Um, I agree with Warren Buffett, one of the world's richest people, who says that it's fine to allow people to work hard and build up a lot of money, but it's absurd to allow them to pass on uh, the majority of that money to their children, who, who then are just sort of born lucky through no work of their own. Uh, and I think that the debt duties, estate taxes, are a very fair tax that helps everybody to start on roughly the same thing. So I would like to see uh, more money raised through uh, death duties on, on wealthy, wealthy people, uh, and that would be a, perhaps a better way of help to build a better society than uh, simply singling out 12,000 very people. Members of the ruling party in Argentina also proposed before the coronavirus to release all prisoners who have not committed violence crimes. Do you agree with this measure and would it possible in Australia? Uh, let me just check that I understand correctly. Is, is this proposal because of the concern that the coronavirus will spread in the prison? That's it. Uh, yes. Well, I think if, if, if there is evidence that coronavirus is spreading in prison, then I think it would be reasonable to release uh, prisoners who have not committed violent crimes and uh, neither, neither are they in prison now for committing violent crimes nor do they have a record of violent crime. Um, I think that would be reasonable because otherwise they risk uh, a very serious penalty for uh, committing not so serious crime. Um, but I don't think this is likely to happen in Australia because actually we have been very successful in controlling the virus. Uh, Australia is, with New Zealand, among the most successful countries. We have only had 
90 deaths for the virus so far, uh, which is really tiny compared to many other countries. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, I don't think any people in prisons have died from the virus. So uh, this would not really be an issue in Australia because of our good fortune in, in uh, limiting the spread of the virus. El director of the Argentine Institute of Epimediology Research predict that quarantines save 40,000 Argentines from debt. At the same time, the 20% increase of poverty and the economic crisis added by the quarantines would generate around 50,000 additional debts in the next four years. Assuming that the morality of the act should be evaluated based on the consequence, what choices should the government make? Well, um, let me first say, uh, I can't judge the accuracy of these figures, mm -hmm. right? I'm not an expert on that. But let's say we just assume that these figures are correct, mm -hmm. that uh, the quarantine saved 40,000 people from dying, but caused 50,000 to die. Well, you can do the mathematics uh, as well as I can, right? That means that a net 10,000 extra people died. And if that is accurate, then the quarantine was a mistake. Um, we, I don't think it matters how people die. We shouldn't just focus on deaths from the quarantine and ignore deaths from increased poverty. Uh, we should be concerned about the deaths in general. So um, why would we do something that we know will lead to an extra 10,000 deaths? That doesn't make sense. So as I say, if the figures are right, the quarantine mistake and it should be ended. In Argentina, about the dilemma of attacking the economic consequences of the coronavirus quarantine, the trolley problem that has been used a lot, that is the trolley continues the course, it will kill five people, and if someone changes the diversion level, it kills only another person. But people prefer who dedicates destiny to being responsible for the death of only one. Could you deliver into the message of this ethical experiment? And can this uh, experience, experiment sorry, explain why people prefer 40,000 uh, deaths of coronavirus for 15,000 deaths in the future? Well, I think what the trolley problem suggests is that at least some people don't want to take responsibility for a particular death. So um, some people will say, they would not pull the switch to divert the runaway trolley because then they would be responsible for the death of the one person. Whereas um, if they leave the trolley, they leave the switch alone, they won't be responsible for the death of the five people. Um, in fact, when we ask a, a wide sample of people, most people don't do that. It's a minority only, um, about 15 to 20% in most uh, experiments who say that they would not pull the switch in those circumstances. Uh, and I think in this case, the majority are right because we should pull the switch. We should save uh, the net four lives. Um, and we don't, it's not that we want to kill the one, of course, the, the death of the one would be seen as a side effect of justifiably saving the five. So, um, in this case, again, assuming we are certain of the facts, but if the facts yes. are, as you suggested in your previous question, 
then it would be like a trolley problem, uh, except that we would be uh, allowing the virus to kill 40,000 rather than doing something to prevent the virus killing the 40,000 with the indirect effect of 50,000 dying. I, I think what we have here is a problem that we can identify the cause of the death of the 40,000. We can say, well, that's the virus, and we could stop that. Whereas the others, it's, it's in the future, it's not happening right now, we can't be really certain that the economic recession has killed any particular person, you know, because maybe that person could have somehow found work and got out of the recession, but other people didn't. Um, but I think it's a mistake. I think we, we should try to save the largest number of people and uh, not focus on whether we do it by pulling a switch, not pulling a switch, by doing a lockdown or not. We should be influenced by the consequences uh, and try to produce the best consequences uh, by whatever action are going to have that outcome. In your field, applied ethics, thought experiments have become widespread. One of the most famous is your Pond story. Can you explain uh, then for our Argentine audience and explain why they are so valuable? Yes, I'm happy to do that. So this is a little story that I used many years ago in an article that I've talked about often since. Mm -hmm. In an attempt to uh, help people to understand our obligations to people who are far away, so particularly people in, who are poor, who are not near to us, um, but who we could benefit. Uh, I asked people to imagine that they are walking through a park um, and in this park there is a pond, uh, an ornamental pond. Uh, and you know that this is a shallow pond because in summer you've seen children playing in the pond and you know that adults can easily stand up in the pond. Um, but uh, today it's, it's not summer, there's no children playing in the pond, and you don't expect to see anyone in the pond. But as you walk across the park, you notice that there is something flashing in the pond. And when you look more closely, you see that it's a small child, just a toddler, uh, a child too small to stand up in this shop. And the child seems to have fallen into the pond and to be in danger of drowning. Well, the first thing you would probably do is to look around and say, uh, who's looking after this child? Where are the parents? Where is the babysitter? Somebody must be looking after this child. But you don't see anybody. It seems like you are the only other person in the park. And so your next thought would be, well, this child is drowning. I can save this child. And uh, I should rush down to the pond and jump in the pond and pull out the child. But then you have a third thought, and that thought is, um, Unfortunately, you're wearing some of your best clothes, very expensive pair of shoes, uh, maybe expensive suit, and that's going to be ruined by jumping into this muddy pond and you don't have time to change. So suppose that somebody did think about their expensive clothes and they said, well, I'm not responsible for the child being in the pond. It's not my child and nobody even asked me to look after this child. So why should I go to the expense of uh, buying a new pair of shoes and other clothing to save the child of a complete stranger? Now imagine that somebody did think that and they ignored the child and they walked on past the pond. 
And predictably, the child then drowned. What would you think of that person? I think everybody would think that was a terrible person. That person did something very, very wrong because you can't really compare a child's life to the cost of a new pair of shoes. And of course, I agree with that. And I'm happy to report that most of the people that I tell this story to, virtually all of them, agree with that. But then if you do agree with that, I ask you to think about your situation. If you are comfortable off, middle-class person, uh, your situation regarding an extreme poverty, uh, particularly children in extreme poverty who often die from poverty-related causes, whether it's hunger or malnutrition or poor sanitation or diarrhea, uh, um, lack of healthcare. There are many preventable causes that lead people in poverty to die. And we help. We have effective organizations to assist with that. So if you don't help those organizations, if you don't donate anything to those organizations, aren't you like the person who lets the child drown in the pond? Because you could be saving a child. You could be saving a child at quite a modest cost. And that's why I argue that's what we ought to do. And may I mention that's also why I set up uh, a charity called The Life You Can Save to explain to people that you can save lives and to recommend some of the most effective organisations that are saving lives in countries in the world. So if your uh, readers and viewers would like to look at that, uh, they can go online to www.thelifeyoucansave.org and they can get information about uh, these items that are about most effective. Available. Some organizations in Australia think that China must pay at the other's country for the responsibility to create the coronavirus and also because China doesn't inform uh, so fast that was necessary. Do you agree with the idea that the international uh, countries uh, bill to China the cost of the coronavirus? Well, I think there's no question that the coronavirus did come out of China. It's possible that it also came out of one or two other countries around the same time, uh, but it certainly came out of China, more specifically out of Wuhan. Uh, and it does seem to be true that China at first um, did not report fully uh, on the virus and on the danger. So China does bear some responsibility. Um, I am less concerned to pursue the idea of China paying for the damage. Um, rather, I would like China to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And uh, so I would like to see China take very strict measures about uh, the wet markets from which the virus arose, the uh, markets selling wild animals. Uh, and uh, I would also like to see China regulating its uh, intensive farms, its factory farms, more closely because that's another source of viruses that can cause pandemic. So I think we should be forward-looking more than backward-looking. We should look at what we can do for China and every country in the world to reduce the chances of this happening again uh, rather than trying to get China to pay for all of the damage caused, which doesn't really seem realistic to me. Uh, you have called from the ban on wet markets such as the human market where coronavirus uh, is believed that jumping from animals to human. Do you think that the international 
uh, organization must obligate China to close this kind of market if they didn't close? I believe that that is what should happen, that uh, international organizations like the World Health Organization and others should uh, require China to close these markets. They should also require other countries that have smaller markets to close them. And if countries do not close these markets, then uh, I think some kind of trade ban on uh, products that could carry the virus might be a desirable way of putting pressure on countries to close these markets. I, I do think that that's uh, extremely important and uh, I would like to see concerted international effort to have those markets completely shut down. You have argued that it is time for experimental testing for vaccines and other treatment on humans as opposite to the longer process to include animal testing and reduce risk of humans. Can you explain this in the context of the coronavirus? Well, um, I think we all agree that uh, we need a vaccine for this virus, that the sooner we get a vaccine, the sooner we'll be able to get back to normal. Uh, and uh, that is important, as we've been discussing, that will have uh, very important consequences in reducing poverty and the deaths that follow from that poverty in, in many countries of the world. So this is a matter of great urgency. Now, the normal way of developing a vaccine is to, uh, when you have a promising candidate, to uh, vaccinate people with it once you're assured of its safety, and then wait for them to possibly get the virus. And you need a, a long time period. You need a lot of people to inject because the number of them who will get infected with the virus is, in any case, quite small. Um, so it takes a long time to get a result. But if you have human volunteers who are prepared to first get the vaccine and then deliberately be infected with the virus, then we can get results on the effectiveness of the vaccine very quickly. And uh, fortunately, um, and it is a great a sign of uh, great altruism, there are thousands of people who have already volunteered to do exactly this, to um, Uh, get, the, get a promising candidate for a vaccine and then be challenged with the virus, uh, get deliberately infected. So I think that if they are well informed about this, then I think that that is uh, totally ethically acceptable. And in fact, uh, I think we should greatly admire the people who are willing to do this. We should regard them as heroes who are being uh, altruistic and are doing it in a very effective way. You wrote Animal Liberation in 1975, where you argued about extending the utilitarian principle of maximizing welfare beyond humans. What do you think are the strongest arguments used against your thesis during these years? Well, um, firstly, let me say that um, my argument was not only about a utilitarian principle. Mm -hmm. um, the essential argument was that whatever moral status we think human beings have, we are not justified in limiting that to human beings. Because what is really at the basis of having a moral status, of being a being of moral significance, is the capacity to feel pain and suffer. And obviously non-human animals have that capacity. So whether we talk about utilitarian principle, of uh, maximizing happiness and minimizing pain, 
or whether we talk about uh, the idea of beings having certain rights, um, the boundary between humans and animals is not the boundary of those principles, whether they are principles of rights or principles of, of uh, utility. Um, there is no justifiable basis for saying that every human being has some kind of right that no animal has, because uh, we have uh, some humans who uh, have such severe brain damage that they are in fact not able to reason or think any better than a non-human animal, uh, but they can feel pain, so they still have a moral status. We should still try to avoid inflicting pain on them. Um, and the same must apply to animals. Just the fact that you're a member of the species of Mesapian cannot be morally decisive any more than the fact that you're a member of the European race uh, is morally decisive and gives you a better moral status than uh, a member of a different race. So um, I think that this argument actually has not had any real refutations um, over the 45 years since I wrote Animal Liberation. I've not seen any real objection to that particular claim. What I have seen are questions about how we know how much animals suffer, uh, and we compare the suffering of animals with the suffering of humans, especially humans who are rational beings, think in different ways from animals. Those are good questions, and those questions can merit a serious discussion when we consider uh, situations in which we have a choice between improving life for humans or improving life for animals. But, um, but the basic principle of my book, the principle of rejection of what I call speciesism, the kind of bias towards our species that is similar to bias racists have towards race, um, I have really not seen any argument that suggests that it's justifiable to think that humans and only humans have some moral status that uh, no member of any other species can possibly. Some studies indicate that cooked meat consumption allowed humans to develop a large brain and therefore have greater cognitive capacities. If this were so, good is not an argument in favor of meat consumption. Uh, even if this hypothesis is true, I can't see it as at all relevant to whether we should consume meat today. The, the argument is about how we evolved a larger brain, which happened hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, and it has no relevance to whether we will improve our thinking today. Uh, today, we have many other ways of meeting all of our nutritional needs, including needs for protein and uh, anything else we can produce. So um, we don't need to eat meat today in order to have higher cognitive capacity. And of course, there, there's no evidence that people who have been vegetarian or even vegan have, uh, for many years, have lower cognitive capacity than anyone else, nor is there any evidence that their children have lower cognitive capacity. So uh, none of this, you know, it may be of some interest to people understanding the origins of human beings, but none of it has any ethical relevance to uh, what we ought to be eating today. Chubal Arari, who wrote the prologue of one of the reeditions of Animal Liberation, also is vegan. Could it, be, could it be said that humanity 
needed to eat or could need to eat meat in the evolutionary pro process, and today it will not longer need it. Yes, absolutely. I think that that's what I was saying, that if this is true, um, we don't know if it's true, but if it is, then it's something that happened in the past. Uh, and let me also add that um, my views are not that it's absolutely wrong for anybody to eat meat under any circumstances whatsoever. Um, I know that there are some people in the world today who have difficulty in providing an adequate diet for themselves and their children, uh, and maybe uh, running a few chickens around their village is a way to get some eggs or to get some meat, um, which will help to nourish them because they can't get uh, enough protein otherwise. Then um, I'm not saying that they should not uh, eat eggs or meat. Uh, what I am saying is that for those of us who have that choice, who can walk into a supermarket and can buy uh, a variety of kinds of food which will nourish us perfectly well, both plant-based foods and uh, meat foods, then it's wrong for us to uh, choose products that make us complicit in inflicting great suffering on animals and damaging the environment uh, when we have that choice. Um, you know, it's ethics is relative to our circumstances and to our choices and to the consequences of our choices. And therefore, it will vary according to those consequences and according to the different circumstances that people might be in. You said, I am not an animal lover. It has to do with ethics. We should not produce pain that is not necessary. Also say that feedlot and other forms of confidence uh, for breeding animals make the animals suffer lots uh, a lifetime. If your calf were outdoors, dressing, like in Australia and Argentina, were in the past, making suffering that happened only at the end, could it be more ethical? Yes, it would be more ethical to eat meat if we ate meat from animals that had a more natural life, a life better suited to their interests. Um, as you say, grazing outdoors, as used to be the case for cattle in, in Australia and Argentina, and uh, to some extent still is, although they all, all go to feedlots in the end now. Um, but you know, I emphasise it would be more ethical. It would not be completely ethical still um, because of the way we treat them then when we transport them. Uh, in Australia, certainly cattle are transported long distances in very crowded trucks, um, which must be a terrifying experience for them uh, before they are slaughtered, or in some cases, even worse, they are put on a ship, exported alive by the countries where they may be slaughtered without um, stunning in a ways that cause more pain and suffering. So that, that would still not get and I should also mention, particularly for, for cattle, uh, that there is now an additional reason which I was not aware of when I wrote Animal Liberation in 1975 for not eating uh, the cattle, and that is they are a major contributor to climate change. Uh, that uh, the livestock industry in general is a very big contributor to climate change, and the worst contributors are the ruminant animals like uh, cattle and sheep, because they produce as much methane. So. There is also that reason against uh, cattle, even if they were on grass all the time. They would still be producing the methane. Would be in favour of animal consumption in their treatment was in some sort of welfare in the future? Well, 
as I said, I, I do think that it's better for animals to be treated well. And if animals really had good lives um, and then they were painlessly killed without suffering the ordeal of transport, uh, I could imagine that um, from the perspective of ethics relating to the treatment of the animals, that that would be acceptable. Um, as I just said a moment ago, there is still the question of the greenhouse gas emissions that the animal might use, so that would depend on the species of the animal. Um, and there's also the question of whether if we treat animals as things for us to use, just as a means to our end, whether we ever really will treat them fairly. Um, so, you know, I think that there is a danger that by thinking of animals just as things that we eat, we never will treat them fairly, and that's why I think it would be, would be better to make a, a clean break with this way of thinking of animals and not to just use them as a, a means to our end. In response to the complaint of the Human Society of the United States showing cruel treatment of dairy cows to seek or injured to walk at the time of their death in Halmand Westland, uh, Struer House in California, you say that it is because people want to eat sensitive creatures and there is competition to supply meat at the lowest price possible. What will be the effective ethical way to satisfy the desire of consume meat in the future? Will all meat disappear from the restaurant menus and be replaced by the artificial meat? I uh, hope that in the future we will be able to have meat that comes from living animals uh, replaced by alternatives. Now, um, you refer to these alternatives as uh, artificial meat. Um, I think there are two different types of alternatives that we ought to distinguish here. Uh, one would be plant-based products that uh, taste like meat, that have the same feeling, the same chewiness in the mouth as meat. Um, this already exists as far as a hamburger is concerned. Um, in the United States, I've eaten burger that is called the Impossible Burger. Uh, I'm not sure if it's available already in Argentina, but um, it, it tastes, uh, people say, very much like a, a meat burger. Uh, I'm not the best person to judge because I haven't eaten meat burgers for close to 50 years, um, but uh, people who do eat meat burgers say, yes, it's, it's just as good, um, maybe even better than going to a hamburger chain and getting a, a hamburger. So that's one possibility, and I think that uh, stays ready here, and I welcome that. hope it can expand beyond hamburgers to other uh, kinds of meat products. The other possibility that is not yet available is that it will grow meat at the cellular level. So we will have real meat cells that will cultivate, uh, that will grow uh, in a nutrient mix, and will produce meat, um, hopefully in the long run, all different kinds of meats, uh, steak, well as hamburger. Um, and uh, I've heard that uh, fish is being produced in this way as well. Uh, and that will really beat meat. Um, it will at the cellular level be exactly the same product, uh, but it will never have been through a living animal, so there will be no suffering uh, from animal. And there will also be very, very low greenhouse gas emissions compared to animals. So that's another possibility, and I would welcome that. Um, I would be prepared to eat that uh, if it becomes available. Um, even though, as I say, I haven't eaten meat for nearly 50 years, 
but uh, that would, I think, overcome the ethical objections that I have to eating meat. So it would be a better world. We could replace uh, current industrial meat production with uh, either or both the plant-based and the cultured meat. A definition of effective altruism is a philosophy and social movement that provides evidence and reasons to determine the most effective way to improve the world. Which is your definition? Uh, I use that definition. I think it's actually a very good definition to say that what effective altruism is about is trying to find the most effective ways to improve the world. Uh, and by improving the world, you mean uh, everybody in the world, uh, not just the people in our own country or community, but uh, globally. And as we've been saying, not only human beings either, but also to be concerned about the well-being of all creatures capable of feeling pain or enjoying their lives. Uh, so effective altruism is about trying to do that, uh, making that one of the goals of your life and trying to do it by the most effective means available. You said the better thing that the, the, the people could do with the life is change the idea about how ethically the life could be in an altruism effective. The lack of the altruism is a problem of ignorance or insensitive? Uh, I think the answer to that is probably that the lack of altruism is the result of a combination of ignorance and insensitivity. Uh, I think that um, for some people, it is ignorance about how easy it is to help others, how easy it is to effectively do good. Um, I know that very often when I've spoken in public or on talkback radio programs about um, altruism, uh, people will, will say, yeah, but how do I know that if I donate to this charity it will do any good? How do I know it won't get used up by uh, the administration of the faculty uh, of the charity? Um, uh, and the answer to that is you can know that um, because there are independently assessed and audited charities uh, like those recommended by the Life of Save, the organisation I found. Uh, uh, so there I think there is a kind of ignorance that can be overcome about how we can effectively help others. But unfortunately there are some people who, even when they know that they can quite easily help others, simply don't do it. Um, and I'm not sure why, and maybe it goes back to the evolutionary basis of our nature, that uh, some people are more focused on themselves and perhaps focused on their immediate family, friends, and uh, don't think about others in, in much greater need. Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that we, we have to try still to educate those people. And perhaps we can appeal to their broader sense of self-interest and and tell them about the research showing that people who help others actually have better lives themselves. They are more fulfilled, um, uh, more satisfied with their lives than people who focus more narrowly just on themselves. Are millennials more altruistic and more involved in improving the world than the generations that preceded them? I think millennials generally uh, do have more of a sense of wanting to have some purpose in their lives. And I'm thinking particularly here of millennials in affluent societies because they have seen their parents generally do reasonably well, children of middle-class families, um, but they've seen their parents not really being fully satisfied with their lives. 
but despite meeting their economic needs, they've not, they don't have their parents as having had really satisfying lives. And so they're looking for something a bit different and they're looking for purpose and fulfillment. And many of them are finding it in the effective altruism movement. And uh, that's very encouraging. Of course, that's a generalization. It's not true of all millennials, but I, I do think it's a trend that we're seeing with the millennial generation. In addition to ethics, is the main purpose of science, of all the science, to find what is the most effective way to improve the world? Well, I would hope that science would seek the most effective way to improve the world. Mm -hmm. um, that does seem to me to be a truly worthy purpose. But of course, uh, what we mean by improving the world is a very broad term. And um, some people may think that we improve the world if we understand the universe better. So that if we uh, understand things about the universe and about uh, galaxies far from us, this is an improvement. We, we know the world we're living in. So um, I don't object to science discovering those things. Um, perhaps they're not as immediately urgent and important as finding out how to uh, eliminate poverty or make sure everybody is well fed or trying to reduce climate change. Those seem to me to be more urgent objectives. But, um, but I think that uh, it's good that we have greater knowledge of our universe. And so I support scientific uh, investigation of those topics as well. Could deepen on the recommendation of Holen Karnowski about have an universal perspective, well-being is important and suffering or premature deaths are wrong, animal suffering is also wrong, we must seek to maximize the value of effective altruism. Uh, Holen Karnowski was uh, talking about what he sees as characteristic values of effective altruism. Um, so he thought that effective altruism generally take a universal perspective, that is, they are concerned about the well-being of everybody, they're not just concerned about the well-being of people in their own community or even in their own country, but they would like to improve well-being everywhere, so they will look for the places where they can do that most effectively, which for citizens of affluent countries are likely to be beyond the borders of their own country, because it's much more cost-effective to help people in extreme poverty in low-income countries than to help people in poverty in high-income countries, where already many of their basic needs are met anyway. Um, so uh, secondly, uh, well-being is important, and suffering or premature death are wrong. Those are basic values that most effective altruists hold, that uh, It's better for people to be enjoying their lives than to be miserable. That seems to be self-evident. Uh, and that applies to non-human animals as well. Uh, if they're capable of suffering, it's better that they don't suffer. It's better that they can enjoy their lives too. Um, and uh, that it's better people don't die young, that they live out a, a good lifespan. Uh, so I think those are very widely shared values that effective altruists also support. Um, Uh, but what is distinctive about effective altruism is that they do make one of the goals in life to try to improve these values, to maximize these values, and to do it as effectively as possible. So whatever resource that they have available, whether it's uh, time that they can volunteer for to help organizations or money that they can donate, um, they will try to find the ways of doing this to get the best value 
from what it is that they're doing. Uh, just as when we go to buy a new phone or a computer or a car, we investigate where do we get the best value, how do I get a good value I'm going to spend. So similarly, uh, when it comes to uh, charitable work, we should also take the same care to get the best value. But we shouldn't just say any organisation is as good as any other. Uh, we shouldn't just give impulsively because somebody hands a grocer with a picture of a smiling child and like the child to get that organisation. That's uh, that's not the way we make our other decisions about spending money. Um, that's not the way we make our decisions about what to do with our charitable donations either. I asked you to tell us the story of Toby Orr and the organization that he created, giving what we can. Uh, Toby Ord uh, was a graduate student in Oxford in the early years of this century. Um, and he read an article that I wrote called mm -hmm. Famine, Affluence and Morality, um, which is about the obligation to help others. It's the article in which I first told the story of the child drowning in the shallow pond. Uh, and uh, he thought that the argument of this article is correct, and uh, not only is it correct, but it is something that uh, we ought all to do something about. Um, so he started looking around to see how much good he could do with um, a modest uh, income. And, and what he did was this. He first calculated how much he might be able to earn throughout his life above uh, what he needed to live on. And he was at the time, he was a, as I said, he was a graduate student at Oxford in England. He was on a scholarship. Um, and the scholarship was a relatively modest amount of money, as scholarships usually are, but it was enough for him to live on and enjoy his life. So he said, imagine that that's all I spend, adjusted across for inflation, that's all I spend for the rest of my working life. And then imagine how much I'm going to earn if after I graduate from Oxford University, I become uh, an academic, uh, a lecturer, and then eventually a professor, how much I like you to earn during all these years. And he did that and he added that up and then he deducted what he would need to live on, essentially the equivalent of his scholarship for all of those years. And he ended up, as you could imagine, with quite a large sum of money though he was never going to be really rich as an academic or a professor, he realised he would be able to save quite a large amount of money. And then he said, well, how could I do the most good with this money? And so he looked around for things that were inexpensive, but that would do a lot of good. And what he came up with was an article showing that the major cause of preventable blindness in the world today is a condition called trachoma. Uh, trachoma is a microorganism that gets into the eyes of children in countries where it's hot and dusty and hygiene is not very good, so for example, North Africa. Um, but we can easily prevent trachoma with very simple treatment, very inexpensive treatment. But unfortunately, this treatment is not provided everywhere that it's needed. So Toby had this sum of money that he thought he could spend through his life, and he had this very inexpensive way of preventing people going blind. And then he just did the mathematics and said, how, ma how many people could I prevent going blind for the amount of money that I could afford to donate? 
And the answer he came up with was 80,000 people. Uh, and that really surprised me because that's a very large number of people, right? You can imagine, I don't know what the, the biggest football stadium in White Series is, but uh, maybe also hopped 80,000 So imagine that stadium full of all those people and every one of them would be blind if you had not donated money to an organization banging Homer. Just think how would you feel if you knew that you had prevented all those people from becoming blind. Toby thought that this is an amazing fact that other people should know that. So he set up the organization Giving What Can to tell people about this. And he himself took a pledge to live on essentially his scholarship uh, kind of money uh, as long as he was working and to donate them to the most effective charities he could find. Uh, and that was the beginning of this organization called Doing What We Can, uh, which was one of the first pioneering organizers of the effective altruism movement. I ask you also to tell us the story of Julia Wise and her blog, Giving Gladity. Uh, Julia Wise is an example of uh, how some people come to effective altruism without any background in philosophy at all, but simply from their own good instincts, uh, their own good nature. Uh, Julia Wise uh, was uh, a young girl being brought up by her parents in uh, America, not far from Boston, uh, and she learned, as children do, that uh, there are other people in the world who don't get enough to eat, who are very poor and don't have enough to eat. And from the time she learned that, you know, maybe she was seven or eight years old, she already had this idea um, is it right my parents should buy me an ice cream, which I enjoy, but I don't really need, um, rather than give the money to some people who are so poor that they go to be hungry? Um, and, you know, she thought about that and talked about it, but um, didn't really do much about it at first. But as she got older and started to think for herself, to have her own money, she did start to do something about that. She, she became a social worker, she earned money, and decided to give away uh, as much of her money as she could to people who were much worse off than he was. Uh, and she wrote a blog called Giving Gladly, you can find online, um, and especially the beginnings of that blog I think are really interesting, where she talks about how she could live more cheaply and give away, even as a social worker, where she wasn't earning a lot of money, she could give away about a third of what she earned. Um, and she talks about how she was glad to do this how it made her happier to know that at last she was helping these people who really needed and to find good organizations that were helping these people. Uh, then eventually she got married. She persuaded her fiance before they were married that, that they would do this as a couple too, that it wouldn't only be her who was giving, but they would both give. And fortunately, he got a job um, with Google, so he was earning more money. So they ended up giving half of what they're earning. Um, and Julia is now active in the effective altruism movement. But uh, she's a good example, as I say, of somebody who comes to this more instinctively, not through reading articles in philosophy, but just through her own instinctive sense of wanting to help others. And finally, I asked the, you the same about Celso Vieira from Brazil and the foundation, the life that you can save. Thank you, yes. Uh, well, uh, Celso Vieira is an example of somebody who uh, contacted me, uh, who was not from a wealthy country, who was not a person who had um, 
a lot of money or possessions, but still thought that it's important to do something to help others. Um, he told me at, at one point, uh, as an example of uh, his limited assets, that um, he had to move from the room he was renting and he was able to pack up all of his possession in a backpack, uh, except his guitar, which he carried in his hand, and he walked out with everything he owned um, in that and then uh, moved somewhere else. But uh, it was still important to him that he could do something for others. Uh, that, uh, that was a part of his life, that he wasn't just living for himself and that made him feel uh, more fulfilled and satisfied because of it. Which is the role of the 18,000-hour site created by Matt Wage? Uh, okay, so 80,000 Hours is an organization. Um, it's a website, and you can find it at 80,000hours.org. Um, and the reason it's called 80,000 Hours is uh, an estimate that was made of the number of hours that the average person spends working in their career. So over your lifetime, most people will spend something like 80,000 hours working. But how many hours do they actually spend choosing that career? Mostly, very few. Not 1%. You know, 1% of 80,000 would be 800 hours. Very few people spend 800 hours um, uh, thinking about their career choice. Or even 0.1%, uh, uh, really, maybe 80 hours. Um, so people sort of just drift into careers or they somehow are set on a certain channel that their parents uh, advise them or some teacher advises them and they don't think very much about that choice and they particularly don't think about how much good will their career do for the world as a whole. Um, will it be an effective way of making the world a better place? So 80,000 hours exists to provide that advice, to fill that gap in people's thinking and to say, there are many different careers that can do good for the world in different ways. Um, think about some of the choices. And I particularly urge younger people who are still at the stage of choosing a career, or perhaps people who are in a career, but maybe it's not the right career for them and they're thinking about a different career, uh, to go online to 80,000hours.org and start looking at the information that you can get there about different careers may suit you and that may be very effective ways of helping others and making the world a better place. What conclusion did Elis Hansenfeld and Holden Karnowski, who being part of the hedge fund, ended up foundation NGO The Gibbs World? Uh, Elie Hansenfeld and uh, Holden Karnowski were uh, people who were working for a hedge fund. Uh, they were quite young in the uh, early 20s, um, but they had been recruited by a hedge fund that was doing very well. This was in the first years of the 21st century, so before the global financial crisis. Um, and they were earning uh, significantly more money than they had expected to be earning. And they thought, uh, we don't really need all this money. Um, we should be doing something good with it. We could give it some of it to charity. Uh, and they talked to some of the other people working at the same hedge fund, a group, they ended up with a group of about eight people who talked about this, and they all said, yes, but, but which are the best charities to give it to? And they had different ideas, and so they said, well, why don't we really find out? Why don't we write to these charities and ask them what they would do if we gave them 
a substantial sum of money, say, what would they do with $10,000? Now, you have to remember that these are analysts working at a hedge fund. They're very used to working with a lot of figures and a lot of data. But they were disappointed with the replies they got from the charities because they didn't get any figures at all. They got uh, photographs of happy, smiling children being helped by the organization. Um, uh, Or they got photographs of needy children, uh, hungry children, something like that. But they got no information about how many children would be helped by a particular donation. How would they be helped? What was the evidence that would make a long-term difference? Um, So they were quite frustrated and they tried calling the organizations, talking to them. But eventually they realized that Generally speaking, the organizations themselves didn't even have this information. They didn't really know how much good they were doing and what it was costing, say, for every life that they saved, if they were saving the lives of children. So uh, Holden and Ellie decided that there was an important gap here that needed to be filled. And with some financial support from their friends at the hedge fund, they started a new organization well, which would employ people to do search on which are the best organizations to give to, which are the most effective, and to really try to put some figures on this. Uh, so uh, well has prospered. Um, Alden and Ellie left the hedge fund altogether and worked there full time. Um, they had other donors give them money to hire a, a whole team of, of researchers. And uh, now GiveWell is an excellent website where you can find which are the really most effective charities. They do the most rigorous research on the effect charities, on, on uh, how much good they can do, on, on which ones give you the best value for your donations. So uh, along with the Life You Can Save, which also recommends charities, GiveWell is a very important resource for people who want to give effectively. Please compare the donation of David Giffen of DreamWorks made to the Lincoln Center in New York with that the Ted Turner from CNN to the United Nations. Right, a lot of people say about charity, you know, the main thing is that you give, it doesn't really matter where you give, you to follow your passion, or some expression like that. Uh, I think that's really a, a bad thing. And I'd use the example of David Giffen's donation to the Lincoln Center to indicate that. Uh, the Lincoln Center decided that it needed to renovate its main concert, which at that time was called uh, the Avery Fisher Hall. Uh, and so they obviously got engineers and architects who cost this, and they said they needed to raise half a billion dollars, $500 million to renovate the concert hall. Um, and David Geffen uh, gave them 100 million of that in return for having it named after him. So it's now called the David Geffen Hall. Um, now, that means that wealthy concert goers in New York get a nicely renovated concert hall. Maybe it somewhat improves the experience of attending concerts. But compare that with the uh, donation that uh, Ted Turner, the founder of CNN gave uh, some years ago to uh, United Nations to start uh, a program for immunizing children against common diseases that are major killers of children in developing countries. 
diseases like uh, malaria, sorry, diseases like uh, measles, for instance. Um, and uh, that gift uh, has been expanded and others like uh, Bill Gates, of course, have added to those initiatives. Those gifts have saved millions of lives uh, and uh, reduced suffering for a very large number of people. Because not only save lives, but it obviously prevents people getting these very serious illnesses. Uh, so I think it's a good comparison because uh, you have to rate uh, saving lives, reducing the incidence of very serious illnesses with giving concert go a slightly better experience. To me, there's no comparison. Just obvious which one of those you should choose. Uh, and that's why I think that uh, charity, not all charities are alike. Uh, we need to think about what we are achieving with our charities, and some charities are objectively much better than others. Finally, Peter, uh, which message from the source of the ethic give to us the coronavirus? I hope that the coronavirus will lead us to think more about others, that it will lead us to um, show that, that what's really important to us is uh, our health and well-being and that we should care about everybody's health and well-being, that we are all in this together and we need to have a society that is more just and equal, that provides a good level of health care for everybody. Um, so I hope that we will come out of this crisis uh, with a better ethical compass than we had going into it. Perfil Podcast.